Still using SSH keys, RDP logins, and database credentials? It's time to access your infrastructure like it's no longer 1999. StrongDM is the only modern infrastructure access platform. It creates a seamless, secure, and observable air gap between your staff and the critical infrastructure that powers your company. Instantly revoke access to every database, Kubernetes cluster, or server with a click. Automatically log every query, SSH, and cube control command to know who did what, when, and where across your stack. Eliminate credentials from end-user workflows to deploy access that's zero trust and least privilege by default. Trusted by your peers at Peloton, SoFi, Yext, and Chime, StrongDM is the only way to deploy secure access controls in a way folks love to use. But who believes in ad? Check it out for yourself with a no BS demo. Sign up at www.strongdm.com slash get dash a dash demo. Cloudcast Media presents from the massive studios in Raleigh, North Carolina. This is the Cloudcast with Aaron Delb and Brian Gracely, bringing you the best of cloud computing from around the world. Good morning, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome back to the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. And as I hit record on this, it is the end of March. It is hard to believe that we are finished with three months out of this year already. Um, but let's jump right into Cloud News of the Week. We have some interesting updates uh, in public cloud, as well as some vertical-specific things that we've talked about previously and, and some more introductions there. And lastly, we're going to talk about uh, some of the data security breaches that have happened recently. So let's jump right into the first one. The first one is Google and Google Cloud um, talking about some infrastructure updates and some pricing things. And it's been a while since pricing uh, specifically has made the rounds in the news. And the reason for that mainly being is uh, we kind of got through that phase where uh, prices went down and prices went down and prices went down. But then all the different clouds, they started, here's another service and here's another service and here's another service. So now things are getting pretty complex. And Google... Uh, to their credit, is trying to tackle that a little bit, um, really changing a little bit around um, some of them, more specifically like storage and, and um, some of the inbound and outbound charges as well, and starting to bundle some things together uh, and also just making some things to try and make a little more sense and remove some complexity most folks will wonder, well, does that make my bill go up or go down? Well, of course, it's going to depend. In some instances, it might decrease. Um, in some instances, Google admits it might increase as well. So they're giving everyone six months of notice. Uh, these new prices don't go in until October 1st of 2022, which is good. It's good to get this advance notice, especially if bills are going to be going up. Uh, but uh, it's also interesting to see um, some publicized um, billing changes happening in our industry. And I'm all for simplification of the portfolios as well. For our second news article, Snowflake. And I know we've talked about Snowflake a, a good bit here recently, but 
they're doing something um, that I think is really interesting. They've just launched the fourth industry-specific data cloud. Uh, this one is for retail. They've already done financial services. They've already done uh, advertising, media, and entertainment, as well as the healthcare and life science. Excuse me, healthcare and life sciences cloud as well. And obviously, they're they're getting good traction if they're continuing to to launch these out into the market. Some folks may ask why. Well, you get two big benefits. Uh, it is pre-populated with um, some data and data sets, and also it will comply with industry regulations. So right there is two big headaches removed uh, right off the bat. So really good benefits for this. It's good to see Snowflake going in this direction and really providing benefits to industry-specific verticals. Lastly, um, we're going to talk about the Octa Breach. There is a, a Twitter thread that will be in the show notes uh, under the Cloud News of the Week link. And it was interesting to see how the hacker group got into Okta, exactly what they did, the order in which they did, the timing of it all. And at the end of the day, using some pretty common off-the-shelf tools and some known vulnerabilities to get in, and then uh, being able to raise their credentials by, unfortunately, uh, you know, the folks over over at Okta are, are aren't uh, making a lot of friends with this one. You know, the domain admin credentials were in a spreadsheet uh, that they re they got access to. So there's definitely some lessons learned. Uh, for and and everyone in operations, uh, you know, we definitely feel their pain uh, and wish them the best for this as they try and resolve all of this going forward. With that, I'm going to wrap up cloud news of the week. Coming up after the break, we're going to be talking with Lauren Goodman about software automation and decisioning. Uh, and a real quick note on this as well. When we recorded this, recording sounded great, but there is a click in Lauren's audio uh, that unfortunately, because it's right in the middle of the audio and it only happens when he is speaking, I couldn't get rid of it in editing. So my apologies uh, for the, the kind of clicks in it this week. And hopefully it, it won't bother you too bad because uh, the content is really good and it's well worth a listen. And that's going to be coming up right after the break. Today's show is sponsored by Datadog, a scalable full stack monitoring platform. Datadog's synthetic monitoring enables you to detect front-end errors and performance errors by analyzing user sessions and receiving actionable alerts. API tests help you detect and debug user-facing issues in critical endpoints and applications. Build and deploy self-maintaining browser tests to simulate user journeys from global locations. Start proactively monitoring your user experience today with a free 14-day trial of Datadog by visiting datadog.com slash frontend cloudcast. That's datadog.com slash frontend dash cloudcast. Today's show is sponsored by CloudZero. For software-driven companies focused on growing margins, CloudZero is the only cloud cost intelligence platform that puts engineering in control by connecting technical decisions to business results. By analyzing cloud services like AWS and Snowflake, CloudZero provides real-time cost insights that help you maximize margins. Engineering teams can answer critical questions like, who are my most expensive customers? How much does this specific feature cost our business? 
What's the cost impact of re-architecting this application? With cost anomaly alerts via Slack, product-specific data views, and granular engineering context that makes it easy to investigate any cost, CloudZero is your complete cloud cost intelligence platform, connecting the dots between high-level trends and individual line items. Join companies like Drift, Rabbit7, and SeatGeek by visiting cloudzero.com slash cloudcast to get started today. That's cloudzero.com slash cloudcast. And we're back. And uh, this week we have a really interesting conversation. We've been doing some shows uh, on the podcast off and on. Uh, in the topic of AI and ML. And it seems like when we do, we tend to do a couple of them all in a row. Uh, but what we also want to do was uh, slightly dig into a new area of AI and ML as well. And we want to talk about software automation and decisioning today. And so we have Lauren Goodman, InRule founder and CTO on the show today. So Lauren, welcome to the show and give everyone a brief introduction and a background, please. Um, hi, so I'm Lauren Goodman. I'm the Chief Technology Officer for InRule Technology. We've been in business for about 20 years, and we have a product, which is a decision platform, which is a an area where, where you, inside of an organization, you want to manage all of your decision logic and have complete transparency. You would keep that in our platform. It brings together machine learning, decisioning, and process into uh into a common, common view, common single pane of glasses, I think uh, I've heard a few times. And uh, I'm my personally my my passion. I've been programming since I was a very young uh, kid across a variety of computers, and I just remember so deeply being fascinated that you could write a program once and run it infinitely, and you never had to put any more time into making it, uh, you know, in, to, to to keeping it running. And I thought that there's just such an amount of leverage if you can express something uh, in such a way that you don't have to put any more time into it. So time is a big focus there, but. Uh, that's a little bit about me. Awesome, yeah, and and I'll I'll say this too as well. And we and before we hit record, we were talking a little bit. Our audience, they show an interest in AI, AI and IML, but it's not the entire focus of this podcast by any means. And and uh, the hosts, uh, you know, Brian and I, it's not our day jobs as well. So we aren't deep on the AI and ML side. So let's maybe step back a little bit and tell everyone when we when you say um, like a decision platform. Or, or you mentioned using models earlier as well. Um, give everyone a little bit of background of what is a decision platform and how is AI and ML involved in that to start? So a decision platform, we use the term model, and we basically have three types of model. We have an analytic model, which is a machine learning model. We have a decision model, which is a set of declarative rules. Um, a, a good parallel to that is to think of code, but instead you're writing out rules in the language of your business. And the third is a process model. So the, the term model basically says, more or less, here is an example of how I want it to behave. Go do it, you know, 100 million times. And so inside of inside of the platform, uh, various stakeholders would have various. So if I'm an IT stakeholder, uh, I'm very interested in keeping the platform up and running, making sure it's integrated with the right systems. It provides data. If I'm a subject matter expert uh, inside of the platform, my goal is to be as close to the decision as possible. So we like to say, put the person who's closest to the knowledge, closest to managing the decision. Uh, and then finally, if you have an ops side, you know, moving, we have a very similar release train as you would with software. 
in many cases, you're going to want to release a combination of a model along with a particular decision that's been set up and in conjunction with the workflow. Much like you release multiple services and versions to talk to each other, you would do the same inside of our platform. A big piece of our success is focusing on subject matter experts. And I remember in your um, your the uh, talk you were talking, there was um, this interesting person who was, Valenti, I think was his name, mm -hmm. was talking about organizing your, your business around data and integrating uh, your own systems. And if you can manage that, you know, that soup will just basically spawn innovation. And uh, I think that what's, what, what's really true is that in shadow IT's growth, and there's a pendulum. And so, it, you know, let's go back to the late 90s. The pendulum was entirely in IT's hands, if you wanted anything automated, you had to work through IT to make any kind of a change. They were the only people who had the ability to actually create change in something that was automated. And then a product came out called, uh, my favorite example of this, you could argue was Excel, but I would say Access 2.0 was the best shadow IT tool I've ever seen because it lets you paint a form, you could use those fields in the middle of a query, you could generate documents, you could export to Word. And all of a sudden you had uh, a variety of companies who unbeknownst to themselves had their core business running on something made entirely by non-technical people. This was a great, so I used to, prior to uh, Inrule, I had a consulting firm and I, I can't tell you the number of times we would come into an organization that had taken a combination of Excel and Access and, and now had a core enterprise asset that they needed to have turned into a mature application. So I think the pendulum between these two is the question to be asking, and, and I, a lot of people talk about no code and low code as a form of a solution. And I think that's great for not uh, super complex problems. And it's always, they're, you know, they're embracing more and more complicated problems as time wears on. But I think the focus is to say, how do I take my technical resources who understand my infrastructure, understand my business fairly well, how do I put them in a position so that they can make it easier for subject matter experts to do their job and to maintain their logic? And that's kind of the equation we go after is we're not saying, hey, if you go all to no code, low code, there's no reason that you wouldn't have ambient chaos as we had uh, when that whole movement started. And I think the key is that you want to be able to manage how, how various uh, stakeholders inside of your organization contribute uh, what their unique knowledge is. Does, yep. that, uh, does that make sense? Absolutely. And, and Lauren, let me just add this as well. Um, for our listeners that are much younger than you and I, um, Access was a self-contained database on a computer by Microsoft. It was, I think it was Microsoft, right? Um, yep. Back in the day. Um, and uh, yeah, the amount of companies that I also knew because I worked for um, uh, a partner once upon a time and we'd go out and, and do pre-sales and post-sales for customers. The amount of customers running businesses on this combination of spreadsheets and access databases was, was mind-boggling once upon a time. Um, <laughs> now, yeah. le let, me, let me kind of add this then. So like there, there's this really interesting evolution. And so as I understand um, what you just said, we, it's... We're kind of at this intersection of, okay, I, there's everyone I think at this point understands AI and ML is advantageous for the business. And they also understand DevOps and automation and CICD pipelines and some of this is, is also advantageous for the business. And so what we're really talking is about bringing those together, but then also kind of throwing 
I'll say low code, no code, and non-technical SMEs into this as well to make decisions that, excuse me, influence those. Is that a correct way to think about this? Um, when you say, yeah, I mean, I think it's close. I, th- I think when you say um, decisions that they influence, mm-hmm. it, and depending on, you know, and decisions probably a fairly charged, charged word, but uh, the actual decision rests with a human being. And so there's a lot of cases where uh, you might have a machine learning model that's implemented by IT. And where we're coming at it is that the subject matter expert truly owns the decision. We, we call it aligning accountability and control. And so when people would be working historically through IT and saying, hey, I need a change to this, I need to add a new specialty line of insurance for insuring fishing boats, for example, they would sit down with the IT and say, okay, here's what I want, here's how I want to do it. And uh, you know, they were fundamentally making the decision to, to create the new specialty line and were in charge of the decision for what the rules were. But because they didn't implement it directly, they never really accepted pure accountability for its correctness. So I think that's kind of our goal is that in the system, you push that accountability and align it to the control so that the subject matter expert in that case, it would be they made their own uh, specialty line of insurance and sort of IT simply just put all of the tools on the shelf. But I wasn't quite sure how you use the term decision yes. there. Yeah, and 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 uh, so th- yeah, the way the way I kind of think of it is, we're used to SMEs being technical SMEs. Uh, you know, they're really really good at some aspect of technology. But what you're talking about in this instance is your SME is a business SME. They're really really sharp at an aspect of the business and understanding whatever we want to kind of uh, you know optimize for if I use that term, but it would be a business decision. Uh, like for instance, you know, to use your example, like insurance or something else like this. And so taking somebody who maybe isn't as familiar with the technology side of the business, AI, ML, and some of these others, and being more, they know the, the business side and how do we empower them to then set up the frameworks? Does that, is that a good way to look at it? Uh, yeah, I think that, 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 that sizes it up that the, the empowerment side, and we, we, we use the term vocabulary, and, and when we come in and assist a company in an implementation, we take the IT side and the subject matter expertise, and we have them agree on vocabulary that they would want to use in order to take accountability of, of a particular decision or process. And in, in that, we call it getting to the handshake. But in vocabularies, could be text in some cases for building rules, but it could also be shapes on the page. It could be, you know, editors that they would use to enter data into things like a decision table. Um, so it's it's kind of uh, the knowing what you leverage and having both the subject matter expert knowing what they're leveraging and having IT understand how it translates into a pure technical implementation. But again, it's an automated system and you call the platform with a decision and you get an answer for the decision, but how you lay out those various pieces sort of empower everyone around what they're closest to. Ah, okay, thank you, Lauren. And let me add maybe the next step to all of that. Anytime I I think about these kinds of platforms and I think about automation, um, you know, especially like a, a highly automated CI/CD pipeline, I worry about. I'll use the term ripple effect, right? The more we automate, the more damage <laughs> we could <Right>. do <laughs> if something goes wrong, right? The higher the risk if something doesn't quite go as planned. 
Um, how do we account for that in this? Is this more of starting small and baby steps and, and checks along the way to make sure we're, we're getting where we want to go and then kind of turning it on from there? Or what is the way to handle a situation like that? So that that's an excellent question, and the ripple effect of complexity. Um, I always I always like to say nothing's really complex when when you're in high context and you understand it. It's only when you come back and look at your own code a year later and go, huh? <laughs> right. <laughs> but when you look at the complexity of all the moving parts in automation, I think that the key that our approach that we take is you don't need to automate everything to automate something. And I think a lot of times when you're gonna when you're gonna have an application built by IT and you're so comfy in your spreadsheet doing it, and in order to make that you know a, a first class citizen in the enterprise, the application has to do everything you want it. And so there's a lot of work in those little tiny tiny details, like getting the reports right, and these things soak up a great deal of time. So I think the way that we prevent that ripple effect is we say, hey, here's my here's my rules if such and such is greater than this, then do this. If it's less than this, then do this. If the prediction is above this confidence, then do this. Otherwise, put it in a queue for me to look at. Don't do anything because you're outside of what I'm comfortable with. And so when, again, going back to that accountability, if the prior process for underwriting, going back to a specialty line insurance, if the prior process was form-based and they would you know, literally say, here, give me a, give me a, a document with what you want and I'll send you the quote, and the underwriter looks at this over and over and says, hey, you know what, if it's between these thresholds, just go ahead and write it. But I think a key thing is that that ripple effect is don't over automate. Um, you know, I always kind of say you have to do it the hard way at least three times before you automate it. And I think a lot of times we have a, a tendency with pipelines to uh, try and hook it all together and eliminate the manual step, even though, you know, your opportunity to fix things is kind of highest if you're sitting in the middle of something. That address your yes, question. Th that's perfect. That's perfect. And and I'll add another um, ripple <laughs> into all of this. What is the recommendations around the idea of? I'll use the term data drift. Right. Um, data changes over time, or more data is added, and you know, there's always okay, great. This how you know this. You get this result the the first time, but what happens if? the data changes and also how do you know is that clean data or dirty data at times as well is this all about just making sure we we do the proper amount of flagging so and if if um that's that's a that, i think that's a great question on on data, data drift I, I assume i assume you're asking in reference to the data that you're training your machine learning model exactly with. exactly and and so the the intersection this human controlled ai powered is that you you have a declarative rule that sits around the interpretation of that machine learning prediction that can sit around it the the sort of confusion it can look at the confusion make, uh, matrix in your model op and decide hey something's wrong with my algorithm it has drifted outside of my tolerance and you can do that with rules around you know your CICD for uh, model ops so I I I think the um, other piece we bring is this explainability with AI, which is to say that when you get a prediction, you have a, a typical machine learning prediction would say, you know, it's a 70% chance of rain and, you know, I'm 70% uh, confident of that because it's sort of one, one number. And the parenthetical to that is, oh, um, 
you know, I, I think the odds of this person defaulting on this loan are, you know, 14%. If you have rules around that say, hey, anytime, you know, that we have a, somebody has a defaulting on the loan greater than this amount or more loans have come through in a day where the default ratios were at a particular point, again, with, with declarative rules, you get a sanity check on is my model healthy? But again, with the model ops, you're constantly retraining and evaluating your model for its correctness. So I think between the two of those, you sort of keep it on the straight and narrow. Ah, gotcha. Okay. And you, you mentioned model ops there, and I, I, I think there's a, another trend, right? I, I feel like it's almost a running joke now of putting ops behind anything, right? DevOps, DevSecOps, <laughs> AOps, model ops. And is this decision ops now? Um, <laughs> And, and, and I'll ask you this as a serious follow-on question, what industries are typically drawn to these kinds of platforms? Like I could see this benefiting, say, highly regulated industries, but tell me a little bit about who typically um, consumes this and, and how do they get started? What's the low-hanging fruit? So it's, it's funny when you say decision ops, we've thrown that term around internally. We haven't haven't sort of gone to marketing with it yet, but I think that's how we think about it. It's not mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, the automated running of a rules or the automated application of a model. It's the entire operation of how do I move rules between various stages of QA and into prod. It is a true ops problem of, of you know, and another piece of that, how do I save off the rules that were in play at a certain point in time if I ever want to sort of fulfill a right to explanation? So, um, yeah, I do, I do really like throwing on the ops. I think, you know, there were various cyclical times where, you know, we used to put an E in front of everything, like in 2002, and that made it, <laughs> right. you know, because right. email, everyone gets that, right? So right. why not put E, everything else? Um, so the, in terms of target industries, so heavily regulated industries uh, tend, tend to do pretty well with their software. Again, we approach, you know, complicated problems in the enterprise that integrate with, you know, with other systems. There's a lot of, a lot of moving pieces there. Uh, so we do um, a, a great deal of work in healthcare. We do a great deal of work in financial services and insurance. We, I mean, interesting customers, we, we are assist in calculating prison release dates in, in one state. And, um, you know, just a, a lot of programs that have a great deal of regulation or an organization whose business model is really driven by complex uh, targeting and rules. Ah, okay. Okay, great. Um, as this topic may be new for some folks uh, out, that are out there, if they wanted to learn more, how do you suggest folks get started in this space? Because I do feel like at times, anytime you mention AIML, a lot of people do tend to think, you know, high barrier to entry at times. Right. Yeah. And, and it's funny, I, I think ML is one of those things where you know, if you go into Excel and you draw a regression line, you know, that, that it's really like high school algebra at its core, but it's so overhyped to be so complicated that it, it's like kind of intimidating. And um, which I, I really like our, our data scientists are so down to earth. And there's so many other conversations where I feel like if I don't talk like a college professor, I, I don't have the ante for the conversation. So um, definitely being down to earth in terms of starting, um, uh, definitely check out inroll.com. But there's also some great, uh, you know, the space, some people uh, attach hyper automation, digital decisioning. Forrester and Gardner have some pretty good summaries of, of what the full cycles at play are on these. I would say that's a good place to start. There's a few conferences um, around it that uh, uh, you can check out. There's one decision camp and building business capability come to mind. 
Um, and yeah, always con contact me or contact us, and I'm I'm happy to happy to answer any questions. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Lauren. So with that, we're going to end there for this week. Uh, Brian wasn't able to make it this week, but just wanted to say on behalf of Brian and myself, thank you to everyone uh, that listens, uh, that tells a friend, and leaves a review uh, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And so until next time, thank you very much for listening this week, and we'll talk to everyone next week. Thank you for listening to The Cloudcast. Please visit thecloudcast.net to find more shows, show notes, videos, and everything social media. 